What's going on, everyone? Welcome to a Wednesday edition of Flyer and Ice, brought to you by the Heat Ratio Sports Network. Before we start, I want to wish all my Jewish friends who are celebrating the, the high holidays, Alishana Tova. I also want to send my thoughts and prayers out to all the people that were victims of the storm on the first of this month. I'm a teacher. My school district was severely damaged as a result of that tornado. So our thoughts and prayers are with everyone in the Delaware Valley that were affected by um, the remnants of Hurricane Ida. So this is episode 26. As is tradition with our show, we name it after a former flyer. And Nick, we have to go. Brian Prop. Yeah. Got to go Brian Prop. For sure. So with me, as always, is Nick the Scaltosti. I'm Dan Green. And we have a very special guest today, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jason Mertidis. Jason is a longtime radio personality in the Delaware Valley. Jason, for those that are under a rock and are not familiar with you, can you please share your background with everyone and what you're up to now? Uh, well, uh, I've been in radio. Well, I've done radio for 27 years. Oh, my God. That's insane. That's why I have no hair. Um, yeah, 27 years and... Uh, Still doing a little bit of radio, not a ton, but uh, I just do a Saturday show on the Fanatic, and then I've been with the Flyers and the broadcast on the radio side. I think this is 15 years. Wow. Um, uh, doing pre-intermission and post, and uh, of course, I do the Flyers Daily podcast this time of year. It's not daily; it's uh, three times a week. We do it on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But we're getting ready to ramp it. We're getting ready to uh, start to go to five days a week with camp starting, and uh, then we'll be back to seven when the season starts, and. You know, it's uh, we'll just keep uh, keep chugging along. I can't wait for the season to get going, and it's uh, going to be a lot of fun. There's a lot of change, that's for sure. And we will address that in the near future. Here, what, what I've always loved about you on the radio is nothing. The, no. no, no, no. <laughs> I used I used to I love your dry sense of humor. I listen. I I I come from a family that has. I have two sisters, a mother I love. I have two daughters, a wife. So I'm. I'm all about equal rights and I coach my daughters in sports, but I just would crack up every time you referenced your wife as the old lady. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The old lady's cooking dinner, the old lady's barbecue and the old lady's building the shed. I, I it just, I just loved it. I, you're, you're a natural, you have a great voice for radio and you're, you're, it's just, you're a fun person to listen to. And what makes us really excited is outside of you and Al Morgani, there's nobody that likes to talk hockey out there yeah. and uh, welcome aboard so with that in mind well it's it's funny because the old lady's actually six years younger than me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's an absolute term of endearment there's nothing it wrong is, with that. It is. Yeah. and listen yeah. Yeah. Uh, if knowing jason it, it's not like it, it's not derogatory it's just <laughs> tongue-in-cheek fun there, there were a lot of times where i got messages from people going i can't believe that you know she doesn't kill you for calling her the old lady look if she married me, she obviously not, doesn't have a stick up her rear end to deal with my crap, you know, because between like my schizophrenia of doing impressions anytime I hear something funny and just, you know, always goofing, she knows what's, you know, what the deal is. And when I got together with her, I was in radio. So she knew that there's a performance aspect to it and doesn't right. get uptight about it. So it's good. That's very cool. So before we start talking hockey, I just want to ask you, you just referenced uh, 26 years in the broadcast industry. Seven, 27. 27. Don't shade me a year. I apologize. <laughs> Close to my pension. <laughs> right. <laughs> so with that in mind, what was your most 
um, satisfying journalistic moment. And on the other end of the spectrum, one that went south on you that you did not expect to happen. Uh, I guess the most satisfying sports one was probably um, no, they're, they're actually one in the same. Okay. When I was working at YSP way back, I think this was like 99 or 2000. Um, it was Memorial Day weekend and Robert Plant was doing a concert at the Electric Factory. And he comes in. It was the, fir- the second show of the tour, the first show of the tour. So I talked to the label rep and they're like, nah, they're not doing any interviews, blah, blah, blah. It's Robert Plant. He doesn't do interviews. So I get to the venue and I get there early and I find the tour manager. I just said, hey, you know, I'm here. I'm going to do the you know, my show this for during the concert for the rock station here in Tampa. I'd love to talk to somebody, you know, Robert, if, if possible. And the guy's like, yeah, absolutely. No problem. After sound check, we'll make it happen. Hang up out, out there and I'll come and get you. So sound check starts and I'm hanging out by the soundboard and out walks this guy, this older guy. And somebody's like, you know who that is? I'm like, no, he's like, it's Bill Kerbishley. He was the manager of the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, heavy hitter. So I'm hanging out and we're talking to him. And then all of a sudden, the band is on stage. Plant's not on stage. Plant comes walking out and comes behind the soundboard. And he's hanging out, instructing the band on what to do. So I'm standing there with Robert Plant, Bill Kerbishley, and another guy I worked at the station with, Matt. And I'm like, Matt, just be ready. I have my little mini disc recorder to do it. And, you know, he's there with the camera and all that stuff. So sound check ends. Robert walks over to me and goes, you want to do this now? I say, absolutely. I have a 10-minute conversation with Robert Plant. There's the high point. And then as soon as I wrap up the interview i don't even have a chance to turn off the mini disc player i am accosted by about a five foot two english tour manager who was just going ballistic on me the guy who told me i could interview him before and to hang out but he didn't bring him to me so he was pissed maybe he thought that you know like i went after him was like you know being pushy or something guy is kicking me michael lesner from electric factory runs over gets between us he kicks us out y100 out mmr out no bit no radio stations there I got the interview with Plant, got the pictures with Plant, go to the parking lot and call Tim Sabian, who was my boss, and he ran the Stern channels on Sirius XM. And I'm, I told him the whole story. He's like, wait, you got an interview with Plant? Go back to the station, cut it up, get it on the air, great job. So I'm like, I'm thinking I'm going to get screamed at by him because he's a maniac. Pictures go off and everything. Next day, they make some changes at the station. Opie and Anthony joined the station. That camera goes to New York, double exposes all my pictures with me with Robert Plant. Opie and Anthony are holding the patch cheesesteak, wearing a Phillies hat, and I'm faded in the background talking to Robert Plant. <laughs> so there it wow. is. Wow. <laughs> That's a pretty cool story. Yep. Still have the interview somewhere, but I don't even, wouldn't even know how to get it off a of mini disc player anymore. <laughs> was he a cool guy to you? Oh, he was awesome. Yeah, he was great. He was fantastic and very talkative, talking about old memories coming to town with Led Zeppelin. It was great. Yeah, and it's Robert freaking Plant, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean... Yeah, um, uh, you know, I mean, that's as big of a, a star as I've ever interviewed. Um, and he was he was awesome. He was very, you know, very English and, and gracious and and just, you know, it's Robert Plant. Yeah. And I had, I had these great pictures of me interviewing Robert Plant and they're double exposed. And Opie and Anthony are holding the cheesesteak. Sucks. There's nothing I can do to fix it. It's not digital. Yeah. It's on film. <laughs> Andre, thanks for checking in. Andre says it's classic and Andre knows his music. Andre's comes from a music background. Andre's part of the Heat Ratio Sports Network. Thank you for checking in, Andre. Nick. Is there anybody over 40 that doesn't have, that does not have Led Zeppelin in their top three bands of all time? I mean, um, almost everybody has him as number one. Like, that's just ridiculous, that story. 
Yeah, they're not my number one, but they're they're right up there uh, as one of the greats. Like music is subjective, right? You know, you, I can't tell you anything that you like is bad. You can't tell me anything right. I like is bad. So it's it's just one of those things. But yeah, I mean, as far as like, influence, <laughs> yeah, and that's the number one for Metallica me. is awesome. Yeah, Trevor's Metallica got it right. Is number one yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've seen him over 60 times doing all yeah. those years of rock radio. Um, I got to meet man. That's, that's, that doesn't get any better. Yeah, I mean, I, I was introduced to him by a guy that drove me to school when I went to Malvern Prep, a guy that was uh, an upperclassman when I was in seventh grade um, that played hockey. So he drove me to school every day, and he introduced me to him in, like, 84. And first time I saw him was in, I think it was 85 or 86. They opened for Ozzy, Metallica, and um, – I got to meet him when I, I did rock radio for so long, and it was that was awesome. It was great. I mean, I still yeah, love. Just, you're just talking about some some of the most innovative band. I mean, two of the most innovative bands in in history. You know, I mean, there's some more we could probably throw out there. I'm sure we could have a pro- I mean, we'd have a good time having a whole show on 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 this. You know, talk about music and bands and rock and songs and all that stuff. Maybe Metallica is Zeppelin. Basically, it's they're the right. Zeppelin of their generation. Right. That's but they just have stayed together where Zeppelin did not and could not. That right. correct. And obviously they lost Bonham, but Metallica lost Cliff Burton, but they moved right. they kept moving forward. Um we Jason, we were I was trying to remember when when your your time at 97.5 came to an end. You're on I remember Dan and I were talking about this earlier today. I remember you were on Mike's show as his producer, and then um you left that you you got your own show at that point, right? And then, yeah, something, mm-hmm. and then what happened kid. after that? What was, I think that kind of all is a little bit of a blur to a lot of people. Um, but maybe too. you can go back to your time producing Mike's show. And then, um, you know, you know, the excitement that, that came on about getting, you know, your own program and then, you know, kind of what happened from there. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to the station, I think it was 2012 when I joined the fanatic, I left the WIP 10 years ago this month, actually. Um, and then, uh, I joined up with Mike and I'd know Mike from WIP from all my years there in management. And, um, you know, we did the show, I think for about almost, almost six years, I worked with Mike. Um, and then, yeah, I guess it was 2017. Um, they moved me into midday. Uh, I got out of management, which was great. And I moved into midday with Harry and, uh, we did the show for a little over a year and then some changes took place and they moved some people around and I worked with Anthony and then I was let go on Halloween of 2019 with, you know, time remaining on the contract, the whole thing, but there was, you know, budget cuts and, um, you know, it happens. Uh, I, I wasn't, you know, shattered by it and just looked at it as a new opportunity to, to kind of forge a different path and a little bit different path than just regular, you know, broadcast terrestrial radio and, um, loved working with, loved working with Harry, like had so much fun. You know, he and I basically do a couple of shows a week anyway on the phone, just he and I no audience, but, um, yeah, it, it, it was a great experience. And working with Mike, you know, he's, you guys know Mike, he's so bullheaded and he's always right. And we saw things, everything totally different. And we could look at a lamp and say that lamp's on and he'd say it's off. And, you know, we dig it on each side. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of times working with Mike, people are afraid to disagree with him. I was never afraid to disagree with him. We had some couple knockdown drag outs on and off the air um, early on, especially. And, but eventually we got to a point of mutual respect and, and, and it worked. It was a lot of fun. So uh, I think we created some really good radio and entertain people. And, you know, I thought I thought one of the things that with Mike, you needed to soften Mike in a way. And you need to have you need to bring fun elements and bits and those kind of things to the show to soften him because he's always a litigator. Right. He always wants to, like, come at you and, 
So I was always of the mindset to try and have fun, make him have fun. And then, and if you did that, I thought that the audience would have more fun. And, you know, the ratings were good when we were there. I mean, and we did some good radio. I'm proud of it. Now, now he can be a pain in the ass. <laughs> but. Yeah, we've heard a few oh. things. <laughs> yeah, off the air, you and I can have a few stories about Mike and yeah. I. Are, we're very close for a very long period of time. So, All yeah. that being said, uh, he's, he is a legend in the town. You know, mm -hmm. um, Angelo, Anthony. My yeah. certain people, they, they've been around a long time. They have, they, they, so I mean, it all started with the great sports debate with him. I, I recall, I don't, yeah, don't all bred by Tom Bigby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, rest in peace to Tom. But yeah, um, Tom, Tom was a guy I remember him telling me, I want my talent to have an ego. I want them to always be right. That's, like that that. He, that's what he would say. And that, and, and and that like sounds that. just like him, I remember him. WIP. All right. Tell, so tell Mike, I need to see him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a unique guy. So Jason, Jason, we had um, Chris Terrian on last week, and we asked him about the transactions the Flyers made in the offseason, and he didn't seem moved an inch. He was like, what'd they really do? And he even went as far as saying his close friends in the league that are in the coaching perspective, and I think he was referring to the Rick Tockets and Craig Berubis of the world. Mm -hmm. um, they, didn't, they weren't impressed with the moves either. They didn't think the Flyers moved the needle much. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, look, I don't know if they moved the needle or not. The only way to, to really know that is to, to see it on the ice. I, I know that there's a lot of change and on paper um, things, you know, they look like a much more prepared team and complete team than they were prior. And if you go back and you, you look at last season, what they came in with defensively and you compare that to this year, it's far different. There's a lot of experience. There is some risk involved. I mean, you, you traded it as part of the compensation for Rasmus Ristolainen, uh, a first-round pick, and he is not signed by, beyond this year. Uh, you look at a guy like Ryan Ellis, who is 30 and has six years left of term. Uh, and, you know, Yandel's a, a one-year, and it's it's a league minimum, so there's really – I don't know how anybody could have an issue with that. Um, and then you look up front, and Cam Atkinson and Jake Voracek, and is one a better player than the other? I mean – Maybe Voracek's a little bit better of a player, but it's not what they needed, and they, and they needed change. And Chuck Fletcher went out and and really fostered a lot of change, both on and off the ice with the roster, and on and off the ice, you know, with behind the scenes, and and really took a deep dive and you know what the organization and, and self evaluated and where they thought they could be better. And look, you have to you have to incur some risk if you want to be good in this league. It's thirty two teams now. It's not the days of twenty two teams in the NHL and. That notion that everybody makes the playoffs and it was pretty accurate at the time is not the case anymore. Half the league's going to make, half's going to miss. And you have to be able to, with so much talent spread out around the league, you have to be a team that's deep and you have to have some some guys that can move the needle. And on paper, it looks like they have to me. I mean, I look at guys like Ryan Ellis and I go, okay, he, he's a better player than Matt Niskanen. And look at the effect Niskanen had on this team mm -hmm. and Ivan Provorov in particular. And and then you look at Ristolainen, who's been mired in Buffalo, which is, you know, the doctor gives you a week to live. Move to Buffalo. It'll feel like an eternity. Uh, you know. <laughs> and then basically you traded, you know, you, you let Shane Gossis Bear go, and you got his replacement in a guy like Yandel, who's a power play specialist, but it's three and a half million dollars cheaper and mm -hmm. less term. So and he's and he better defensively. Yandel's a better player. So I look at all those things, I go, yeah, on paper they're better, but it doesn't mean anything on paper. I gotta see it on the on the rink and on the ice and how they come together. You can acquire talent in sports, but that talent's got to be able to play together. And we won't know that until 
we get into this season and get a little way into the season to really know what this team is going to be. But, uh, you know, on paper, it looks better and it's, it's different. Um, there's a lot of change and there's, there's been some change needed. It's, it feels fresh. This is true. <clears throat> yeah, that, that, I totally agree with that. I mean, we, we had so many countless um, conversations, post-game shows um, last season um, you know, there were, there were a lot of losses and there were a lot of bad games to talk about. And, you know, over, over that stretch, um, felt like some of the, some of the contribute, you know, what the contributing factors to what was happening last year, get, we'd like to get your thoughts on that. I mean, you think there was a certain level of player apathy, tuning out the coaching staff, um, you know, a surprising player regression and obviously, you know, the goaltending, um, what were your thoughts on, on what happened last year? You know, th- that's the thing. If you kind of create a pie chart and go, okay, where does the responsibility lie? You got to look at everything and, and how you want to allocate the failures of last season. You know, there, there's all different ways. You can look at it and say, well, Chuck Fletcher didn't replace Niskanen or Pitlick in, in a proper way. And their losses were, you know, affected the team exponentially. You can look at, you know, some of the players that just never got going. You know, Konechny's up and down season he had moments where he was very good but he had a lot of moments where he wasn't and he kind of carried over the ineffectiveness of the bubble to large stretches of the season and you know you look at you know the defense and and Sanheim and Myers and all the changes that took place back there and the lack of consistency and partner and you got to figure and then you got to you know put COVID into it and and everything else lack of practice time and the coaching staff and because I'm pretty sure that Elaine Vigneault wasn't preaching you know what we saw in some of those abhorrent pictures on Twitter where, you know, two guys of the opposition are on the, you know, right hash mark of the flyers in the D zone. And they've got five guys there, total structural breakdowns. I know he's not coaching that. So you got to figure out how you want to allocate that blame. And there's a lot of it because it was just, it just turned into a total mess. And uh, you know, when things go sideways, you want practice time to straighten them out and a pause and a reset. And they never really had it except for the COVID pause. And just could never get their feet back under them. So uh, I, I don't know the exact number of how you allocate that. I don't know how much you, you put COVID into it and you want to throw you know that out with it. I don't know. But um, they needed to make a lot of changes and force a lot of change and change kind of the culture and the character of the team. They never developed an identity other than they were they consistently started slow. And you can't chase games. So uh, it was a mess last year. It was tough. I can't believe you guys were willing to do post games. I was I – was, <laughs> Uh, I think I was advertising a monster for somebody to do the post game show on a couple of occasions, you know, like that nine nothing and eight three loss to the Rangers. But uh, it, it was rough. It was it was ugly, and maybe they needed that ugliness to really, you know, force the hand of change and and move in a different direction in total. And to piggyback up on that, though, what what I find interesting and everything you said is spot on, but I find it alarming from the perspective when we were projecting the season. Other than Niskanen, and and I guess we didn't realize Pitlick was going to be a decent, so significant loss. But really, outside of um, Pitlick and the insertion uh, uh, and Niskanen, and the insertion of Gustafson, which was a terrible signing, they had a lot of stability versus other teams that lost countless players. So my other co-host Vance, who's not with us today, we thought that would benefit the Flyers. You lost essentially Niskanen. We didn't think Pitlick was going to be that much of a deal. And uh, so many of the players were returning. So we thought the opposite would happen, that they would have chemistry. They have a, a great coaching staff, two head coaches that are assistants in theory. So it was kind of shocking. But everything you said was spot on. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? You, you go into a season, they didn't have any preseason games. Uh, they had a shortened camp, and it was, okay, well, you know, you're looking for, for angles, and you go, okay, well, that's good because they have a team that's basically returning the same guys. They know the system. They know the expectations. They know what the coaching staff, you know, what they look for and what they want them to do. So they should hit the ground running. And oddly enough, they did hit the ground running from a win-loss standpoint, uh, but it never Smoke looked right. Smoke yeah. Yeah. yeah, it never looked right. And, you know, th they were getting outshot handily in a lot of those games. Not, I, I don't gauge a lot by shots. I, you know, that it's an arbitrary number. It's about quality, not quantity. But they were playing too much in their D zone and they weren't playing in the offensive zone. They weren't owning the puck enough. And, but they, they were getting wins. So it was like, okay, well, when they come together, then it should be even better. But it kind of went, it went sideways and it went the opposite way. And once they started sliding, there was momentum behind that slide, and it just got uglier and uglier until uh, eventually, you know, we, I felt like they euthanized us at the end of the season just to, thank God this is over. Let's put this in the rear mm -hmm. view. But, uh, you know, guys have to compartmentalize it and, and take what they can from the season and learn from it, go into this offseason, do the right things, and, and make sure it's not a repeat performance. And some of the young guys, they got to, you know, turn that curve of uh, development into a different direction because a lot of guys did regress last year with the exception of Farabee. Right, and, and tying into what you just said, have we overhyped our players? Is Carter Hart as good as we thought? Is Ivan Provorov just simply a number two defenseman and not a Norris Trophy candidate that we all thought he would be? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question. You know, you know, especially let's start with Provorov. For Provorov, you know, the lack of consistency in partners is a real problem if you're playing D in the NHL. You need that because you, you you watched him last year. You could see him thinking on the ice. Oh, okay, Ghost is my partner tonight. Okay, Sandheim is my partner tonight. Or Phil Myers is my partner tonight. Justin Braun. When you don't have that consistency in a partner, you know if you're if you're coming out from behind your net and you're coming up into a four check, you got to know where to lay the puck. You can't have to. You don't have time to look. I'm on with Braun tonight. Okay, he'll be at the bottom of the circle. I'm with uh, Myers tonight. He'll be behind the net. You can't. You have to just play on instinct because in this league you're dead if you don't. So I think that affected him and it affected all the pairings. There's a trickle-down effect and slotting effect of guys playing where they weren't ready to play. And Provorov is fine playing on the top pair with the right partner, but without the right partner, you try and do too much and you try and overcompensate, and that's an issue. And you saw that on the ice last year. And then you saw it in the second pair and the third pair and, and down on, on down the line. As far as Hart goes, you know, he uh, – a goalie is a product of his environment a lot of times. And you can outplay your environment like he did the year prior um, because they did give up a lot of high-danger chances and, you know, east-west plays the year prior. And he outplayed it last year. It just became too overwhelming and, and some bad habits creeped in as a result. I always kind of equate it for a goalie like an offensive lineman if, or, a or a quarterback in football. If you're constantly under pressure and getting sacked, eventually, even when you have protection, you think it's you think you don't. And the same thing kind of happened with Carter. You know, the lack of structure in the D zone eventually has a, an effect on you. You can, as a goalie, you want to always put everything in the rear view and, and concentrate on what's next. But there's a game in particular I cited all the time is against, against Boston, where I think they lost five to three. And he got beat three times in, in the first two periods of that game backdoor uh, on his blocker side. No backdoor coverage. He got beat there three times, cross ice pass, easy tap in goals. And eventually, in the third period, Brad Marsham was on the short side, glove side, saw Hart leaning to back door because that coverage hasn't been there, and he beats him short side glove. And that was, to me, 
very symbolic of the lack of structure that took place and the effect it had on him. And then, you know, the season got on top of him as well. And, uh, and he struggled. And then, you know, part of that is environment, but part of that's on him as well. And I, I think it's important for a goalie to go through that and how he has attacked it this off season. And I've talked to him. Um, I think it's been, it's been the right way to do it and get back to your basics and the structure of your game. And the team's got to do their part and get back to the structure of their defensive system to give him in a better environment to succeed and lean on the elements of, of his craft, the way he does it to get back to being, you know, the Carter Hart that we saw the year prior and in the bubble in those playoffs against the Montreal Canadians and, and the New York Islanders. Dan, I'm going to pivot here on, on my question. I'd like to stay on the topic of the defense for a second here. Um, Jason, you talked about how important it is to have consistent pairings. And I think anybody on this program would totally agree with that. Looking at the offseason signings, um, looking at who's coming back, looking at who left. I mean, essentially, you could pencil in at least seven defensemen here that could, could, could you know, uh, etch their name into a lineup card. Um I'd like to I'd like to see what you think the starting six looks like going into the season, and where do you see your uh, one of our one of our viewers uh, made a comment there. I wanted to check in with you to see how you felt York would fit into that whole situation. Yeah, I mean, I think you know we've York's played three games in the NHL, and I think he's played like four or five in the AHL. Um, coming out of Michigan, and obviously the World Junior experience last year, he had a good year, and when he got to the Phantoms after the first game or two. He really settled in and looked good. And then when he came up and played with the Flyers in those three games, he played well. It, it was impressive. And he looks very calm. He's very, you know, he's a guy that uh, when he plays the game, does not look like his heart rate is elevated above 72 beats per minute, right? Very calm and under control. Doesn't try and do too much. Made simple plays. I love the fact, you know, from a goaltender perspective and a D-zone perspective that he wasn't trying to stretch the ice every chance he got. He was right. making good, solid six to eight foot passes, laying the puck into areas uh, where it wouldn't be detrimental. But all that being said, it is only three NHL games when there was no pressure because they were clearly way out of it at that point. And a lot of teams were playing out the string, themselves included. And so there's a lot there's a lot more that we need to see from Cam York. Could he knock the door down and make this club out of out of camp? Sure. Do I think that's likely? I don't. Um, you know, the addition of Keith Yandel gives you a little bit of time to make sure that, you know, he is ready. You know, I talked to Mike O'Connell today who came from the Kings and uh, was out there and works with the Flyers now. And, and what he said was, you don't want to bring a guy up or have him make the team only to send him down because of failure and then bring him up and then have him send him down. You want him when he gets to the NHL to be there and be there for good. Now, with some players, that's possible. Other players, it's not. If you look at guys like Connor Bunneman or Carson Torinsky or, you know, guys like that. But you want to bring a guy up when he's ready to not just play a couple games, but to be there unless it's out of necessity because of injury. So I, I think it's more likely that he starts the year uh, with the Phantoms and they let him get his feet under him and, and get more pro experience and playing against men. Um, and then eventually when it's time and he's ready and the opportunities there that he comes up and he's and he's there for good. So. You know, I I think that, you know, a lot of people look at a guy like Yandel and say, well, he's blocking him. Uh, he's not blocking him. And to me, you can't have enough D-men, first of all. And I, I think it would be more beneficial to start him there. Unless, of course, he comes into camp and just bulldozes everybody, which he could. I don't expect that. But I think, 
Uh, he's a guy, that, and you don't want to screw him up. You want to do him. You want him, you know, to have a great career, not just bring him up because you know he, he's one of their best prospects. You know, the same goes for Frost. It's the same notion. Frost has played a, a game and a, a period, I think, and a couple of shifts since the pandemic started. I think it's probably more likely that he starts the year with the Phantoms as well to get, you know, back playing hockey and get used to it and, you know, get everything back in order be, before you just kind of anoint him. Make and, and they'll earn it. Those two guys will. They'll be here. It's just a matter of when. I just don't know that it's out of camp this year. Now, we, we've addressed already the transaction the Flyers have made. Ellis, Kristalina, and Atkinson, Yandel. The Metropolitan Division has other teams that also made transactions. Where do you think um, the Flyers stand, and what are your thoughts on some of the key transactions made within our division? It's a good question, and it's, it's probably one that's almost impossible to answer at this point. You know, I look at, you know, when you look at the Metro, and it's going to be back to the Metro this year, you know, you know, the Devils made a lot of moves. Are they ready to contend for a playoff spot? I'm not ready to go there yet. I think they're still probably a year away from being a team that's going to really truly contend for a playoff spot. You look at the Rangers, I, I think they they look like a team that's on that path to becoming a playoff team and had moments last year in streaks where they were really good. Um, but they got to knock the door down as well. And the Carolinas had a really interesting offseason to me. You know, I look at Carolina and I'm kind of going, what the hell? They, you know, why did they let Nedeljkovic go over $3 million? You know, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me. They lost Hamilton, who ends up with the Devils. Um, so there's a lot of turnover there. They're still a good team. They're still a playoff team, but I wonder what they are. They make the, you know, they offer Sheet Kakanyemi. He's going to play on the wing there. I think that's a good addition for them. But then I look, you know, you got to look at teams like Columbus. I don't think is a playoff team. They're in rebuild mode. But I look at teams like Pittsburgh, and I look at a team like the Caps, and I look at a team like the Islanders, and I'm not sure exactly what they are either. Um, you know, the Islanders play with such structure. They're going to be a playoff team. Are the Penguins going to be a playoff team? Are the Caps? You know, where's the goaltending for those two teams? Is it Vitek Vanacek and, and Tristan Jari for those two teams respectively? So there's a lot of elements there. And, and, and again, I don't know what the Flyers are. You know, in so many, so often in so many years, we've made the assumption based on what a team is on paper, what they're going to be in, in their season, whether that's with the Eagles and the Dream Team or, you know, the Sixers when they got Chris Weber or the Phillies when they initially got Harper or, or Roy Halladay or Cliff, whatever, it, you got to play it on the field of play. So I, I'm not sure where the Flyers are and where they fit in. I, like I said, they're better on paper, but the game's not played there. So um, to me, it's they got to be a playoff team. They got to be better than significantly better than they were last year. Um, but where they fall in in this division is anyone's guess because so much of the division, I'm not sure how to handicap it at, at any point. I'm, I'm not sure. What what team is going to get out of the gate good but not have sustainability? You know, there's always a couple teams like that, right, around the league where you go, look at this team. All of a sudden, they start off the year like a wagon, and then the wheels fall off. Who's going to be that team? Who's going to be the team that settles in in mid-November around Thanksgiving and then turns into a really good team for the remainder? So we just don't know. And coming off the COVID year, it's, it's even harder to tell. The only thing – again, brilliant points, and – the only thing that concerns me, and, and we'll address this shortly, and, and Nick and I have talked about this constantly. Uh, one of our shows, we, we, you know, we projected, you know, we, we did transactions weren't made yet, but 
Devils, Rangers have unbelievable team speed. Carolina has team speed. I'm still not in love with the Flyers' team speed, and that's a concern of mine. The Islanders, not other than Barzal and, and, and um, Bavillier, they have speed, but they're a more structured, phenomenally coached team. So that's my ultimate concern. I'd like to hear your thoughts down the road. I, we, we, you could address it now if you'd like, and we'll just bypass that question later. But the lack of hands, um, the lack of grit, and the lack of speed was my major concern for this Flyers team. And I don't, I don't know how much of that was addressed. Voracek was fast. Atkinson is fast. Wash there. Um, Ellis can skate. But we'll see. But your thoughts on team speed? Well, I mean, I think speed is an element that you need in today's game for sure. But there's also ways, you know, you can have all the speed in the world, but not play fast, you know, and, and they look like a, a much slower team last year, not only because they, they don't have burners up and down the lineup, like some teams, but they also didn't play fast zone exits. Horrible. You can be a team. If you can come out of your zone, much cleaner, that looks a lot faster than a team that, technically has more speed because of the way you can move the puck up the ice. One thing that, you know, looked it, it, speed looked like a detriment in back pressure last year. Why? I think it was more because they didn't get the puck deep dump ins to the top of the circle, not below the dot. You're just giving the other team a shorter distance to go in transition. And then if your forwards are caught down low, you're screwed. They're on a two, one, two split four check. If that puck doesn't get deep, then you're in trouble because you're selling out with two forwards on the four check. So you already got two guys deep and in transition, you're dead if you don't get the puck down below the goal line. And they didn't do it last year. They didn't do a good enough job, you know, on, on dump ins and getting pucks deep on turnovers that they created in the neutral zone. And the other team's going from the top of their circles right back on them. Odd man rushes the other way and they're chasing the play. So you can play a lot faster. Um, it just depends on how you exit your zone and how exactly. you execute your four check coming out of your zone is paramount. And we saw like Konechny, he was scratched last year because he's flying the zone. Now people say that, which was, shouldn't that attribute to speed because you can stretch the ice? Yeah. But if he's flying the zone, it's easy to read that play. And then it's a turnover exiting the zone. We saw so many times of them getting hemmed in turnovers at their own blue line, leaving the zone, you know, Failed clears. The only clear that seemed to work was high off the glass or the flip. Uh, they got to do a better job coming out of their zone as a five-man unit. When you're doing that, coming out, you'll look like a lot faster team. A lot faster coming up the ice that way. And hopefully, Alice will bring that stability and leadership to the decor. Mm -hmm. um, it starts there. Yeah. Nick? Uh, you nailed everything right on the head there. I mean, it, you know, it sounds like it's run of the mill, but you, you can't, you know, you got to start, you got to start executing a good breakout and, and uh, have everybody on the same page before you can even talk about, you know, getting into a four check or whatever the case may be. You're not even going to get possession if you can't break out the puck on a consistent basis. Um, so ultimately I guess the team will go as far, as far as heart takes them. Right. So is that in your opinion is, do they, can they make a playoff run if Hart stays consistent? Well, I mean, again, the thing with Hart is environment. So they, they have to be like, I think that they attack this offseason really from the crease out without really changing their goalie. Now they did, they, you know, you, you lose Brian, or, you know, 
Brian Elliott, you bring in Martin Jones, but whatever. Uh, but they got to be better from their crease out. They got to be better defensively. They got to play with more structure. They have to be able to exit their zone and, and, you know, lessen the second chance opportunities and teams hemming them in on a four check, therefore playing in their own zone too much, chasing the play. That's when penalties happen. And, you know, you get in there with a stick because you're chasing the play. So if the environment is better and it's an improved structural environment for Hart and he's having success, then yeah, he's going to be a big part of it. But uh, I, I don't think it's predicated on one player. I, I look at it as more of the team playing with more structure, having the puck more, and playing in the offensive zone more. That's the biggest catalyst to whether they're going to be a team that's vastly improved and one that's going to be a playoff team. Uh, yeah, you need the the saves, absolutely. And if the environment's good, and I think that he'll give them to you. And there's going to be breakdowns in the environment in hockey because there's another team trying to you know, dictate the terms, you know, against you. So, and he's got to be there and he's got to make saves that he's not supposed to make. Got to make the ones that you have to make and you got to make some that you, that you're not supposed to make. That's what, that's what successful teams do. And, you know, you just look at like the Islanders, you know, when Barry Trotz got there, that team, the year prior under Doug Waite gave up, gave up the most goals in the NHL with Thomas Grice. And I think it was Halak. It was the most goals given up in the league. These goalies suck, right? They can't stop a beach ball from the blue line. Next year, Barry Trotz comes in, Mitch Korn, and and the system. They give up the least amount of goals in the National Hockey League with the same two goalies that couldn't stop a beach ball the year before. Why is that? The environment was much better. It was adding a level of predictability to the way a team attacks you is everything for a goalie. And when you add that a little bit level of predictability and a goalie has trust in the, the, the support around him and the players around him have trust in him, that's the infectious part that can really put a team into a different level. They shaved the Islanders from Doug Waite to Barry Trotz 102 goals year to year, more than a goal per game difference yeah. year to year just by tightening up their structure. Mm. You want to play goalie in the league? Play for a Barry Trotz team. Right. It's a hallmark. They got to get back to that. The year prior, the Flyers were seventh in goals allowed. Last year, 31st. Allowed the most. The only interesting dynamics with that is they they have the same coaching staff. You thought a, a Vigneault would have brought the stability. So, again, should we be alarmed or the new culture via new players will will be that change? Well, I mean, it's it's a combination of, you know, veteran players um, having more talent uh, across the board, not only in the entire lineup, but especially in that defense room, right, uh, with guys like Ellis, with guys, you know, Ellis is your replacement for Niskanen. You know, they didn't they weren't able to replace Niskanen in that last offseason. There was very little movement. They got Eric Gustafson, who's a gong show defensively, right? <laughs> I mean, he is just a – tough. I mean, he's a beer league defenseman. He's an NHL player marginally, but he's a beer league defenseman. Uh, but, you know, you hope that the addition of those guys and the consistency in partners and the fact that everybody's slotted correctly now. When you're moving guys up, like if you're moving Phil Myers up to your top pair, he's not, he's not that guy. He's not a top pairing right side, right shot defenseman. The year prior, you look at top lines that they faced in the division, Ovechkin's line. Ovechkin didn't have a point against the Flyers two years ago. You look at the Boston line with Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand, very little success against the Flyers. You look at the Rangers and their top line with Panarin and Zabanajad, 
very little success. Last year, top lines feasted on them. I mean, Jesus, Zabanejad had two six-point games in a row, right? He ended his slump. Yeah. Bergeron line feasted on the Flyers. Ovechkin feasted on the Flyers. Crosby always feast. Feasted again. <laughs> if you can't at least – those guys are going to get theirs. They're the best lines in hockey for a reason. But you got to mitigate that. They didn't mitigate that last year because they didn't have a top pairing worthy of mitigating it. You hope with Ellis and Provorov that they have that pairing and they can mitigate that a little bit and, you know, be on the plus side. Now, you mentioned predictability earlier. Um, I still think something's going to be predictable, which is a concern of mine. And in, in my moniker is the word old school because I, despite my young looks, I started in the mid-70s watching the <laughs> Flyers. And I, I still see them as a soft team. I know Ristolainen is a banger, but he fights like a basketball player. So we don't have that element. We're going to be facing Martin, Hathaway, now Reeves, Wilson, Clutterbuck. And we're st- I still don't see that significant power forward that unless, unless Moran dresses in, in these games, how are we not going to get run around the rink with certain teams? Well, is it about fighting or is it about physicality? There's the different. physicality. I mean, I don't see okay. that with our team other than we're still lining. Yeah. So, and I agree with you. And I'm a bit of an old school thinker in this. And I was called a dinosaur because I loved the Ristolainen signing because he brings a ton of nasty. Yes. Yes. Like he is a prick on skates. And I mean, he told me on my podcast, I want, I want to be piece of shit out there. That's yes. what he told me. That's a mm-hmm. horrible Finnish accent, by the way. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what he told me. And he's a guy that will be very physical and, there will be accountability on the ice because he's out there. And again, I don't mean fighting. Like You're right. He's not a great fighter. And it's not about fighting because there's so little of that in today's game. But there's got to be accountability on the ice. And I asked Danny Breer about it. And I asked him, I just said, you know, what does a guy like Ristolainen do for a player like you? You know, he's on your D. And Danny, small, kind of smallish guy that, you know, has got to fight for every inch. And he said, you know, when, when I'm out there watching as a guy, like if it was me and I'm watching the game and I see I'm getting carved up and checked and banged at every inch of the ice I'm on in the offensive zone. And then I look down in our D zone and I don't see any of that happening. It's deflating. And he goes, and having a guy like that creates more space for me. It makes it so that I can do more on the ice. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll read you an exchange I had with a, a current player. I'm not going to say who it is. Cause he asked me not to, Okay, but, but in regards, and I texted him kind of when they got um, wrist aligned and just to kind of get his thoughts on it. And, you know, cause the analytics people hated it and, and all that. And so, so I just asked, I just said, you know, when you look at all of these things with, you know, the analytics and things that you can't measure, which is accountability on the ice. And he used the word fear. So, what he said to me was hockey's a simple sport until you over-evaluate it. There's no analytics for fear when you're on the ice because you can have all the skills in the world. And this player that's saying this is very skilled, but all those skills can be taken away with fear. Tough teams have more rooms to make plays. And then he said, makes sense. Don't quote me on this. So I'm not quoting him on it uh, anonymously. That's why Martin McSorley was on the ice for Wayne Gretzky. Give him all that space. Exactly why he was there. Yep. And make 
you have to think about that guy. Now, is there a lot of that? Not a ton of it. I don't think you can have too much of it, but make no mistake about it. When the Tampa Bay Lightning got swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets and they had none of that, they just were flying up and down the ice trying to outscore teams. It didn't work. Then they went out, they got Blake Coleman, they got Pat Maroon, they got Barkley Goudreau. They went back to back cops. You need guys like that. Nate Thompson brings that. You know, uh, they have other guys that that can bang. Nicholas Albe Kubel's got to have a monster bounce back here. He can be a guy that bangs and there's accountability on the ice. And, and it becomes infectious because, you know, one big hit leads to another big hit. Physical play and accountability leads to more physical play and accountability. And you're right. Reeves is in the division now as a protector for Panera. you got Tom Wilson. You've got Matt Martin. You've got these teams that have that. And they needed that. Broussard's a guy that can bring some grit. So they have more than they had before. Is it enough? I don't know. Is it going to play out where they're, they're a team that's much more difficult to play against because there's accountability? I, I think there will be. Because I think just the addition of Rasmus Ritalainen checks that box in a big way. He is a pain in the ass on the ice. And there's guys that I've asked that played against him. They say, we do not like playing against them. And if you want to pay the real dividend on that, the real dividend on that is if you get into the playoffs and you got to play against Rasmus Ristolainen for seven games <laughs> because he will wear you out. And he is a freak, physical freak. So you're never able to get in the playoffs in Buffalo. That's Buffalo. But, you know, he's a guy that will really pay dividends, I think, you know, in that role and playing division teams over and over again in the season. He's going to drive, he's going to drive opposition crazy. He knows what he's there to do. He's comfortable with the role, embraces it. Like you said, I want to be a piece of shit out there. Well, he needs to be for right. the opposition. Well, and, and but it's a fair criticism. I mean, one thing last year yeah. when Oscar Lindblom dropped the gloves and Joel Farabee dropped the gloves, unacceptable. Well, it's funny. I, I what inspired that question beyond the fact that that's kind of my mentality is I I happened to watch a wonderful show on Amazon the other night called Ice Guardians. Mm -hmm. I, I, I a definite watch for um people that love enforcers and and and, and really uh, jason I, I think brian reeves is literally the last of the enforcers a guy that really technically doesn't play that well but is still in the league wilson can play hathaway can play mm -hmm. reeves is it he is the dinosaur of the enforcer days um so i agree with you that old school hockey of fighting i'm not necessarily looking for that but when wilson totally like you said destroys a plier. I don't want Lindblom to have to drop the gloves. So yeah. I just, I just like to know we have someone like a 25 year old Wayne Simmons out there and we, we yeah, don't quite have that yet. Yeah. I mean, you need a guy that, you know, goes Godfather on, you know, somebody's got to answer for Santino. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And Correct. you know, if you're going to run around out there, then okay. If you're going to run some of our smaller or skilled players. Then we're going to run some of yours. I remember a story um, I think it was uh, Craig Berube that was telling it on my on my Stick to Hockey podcast when I had him and Keith Jones on. Uh, there was somebody that played for the Rangers that was just running around like a maniac. And uh, Berube went, stood over in front of the Ranger bench during a TV timeout and went up to Brian Leach and said, get your dog on a leash or I'm going to take it out on you. And Brian Leach goes down the bench, whoever the guy was, I can't remember who it was, and told him, enough. Because I'm going to get it because of you. You're writing a, <laughs> you're writing a check. I got My ass has got to cash. So, no. So, that's what's got to happen. That's the yeah. trickle-down effect of, 
Okay, you guys want to you you want to run around like an idiot, Reeves? Okay, then Panarin better have his head on a swivel, because every chance I get to bang him and bang him hard and ride him off, I'm going to do it. And you're not your team's not going to like that. So having that element, I think, is enormous, and it does. Like, I mean, the player that texted me that I read you. And that's a player that needs space on the ice. And when you got nobody that can hold the other team physically accountable, you have none. It's choking. We're in agreement. Uh, we, we, it seems like a lot of these shows that we're doing, we're spending a lot of time talking about, and we should. I mean, the, the opportunities that we have on the defensive side and on the grit. At the end of the day, we're going to need to score goals to win games. I mean, I think that, um, you know, how do we, what do we see, who do we see, as consistent guys out there that are shoot first mentality now, um, you know, have a nose for the net, can get the, you know, can put the puck behind, you know, behind the goalie. And, um, you know, do we, do we have that? I mean, are we going to be able to win games five, four, if we get, you know, a little, a little behind early in a game? Um, where, 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 where are the snipers or, or, you know, if, if, if we have lack of, of snipers, what, where do we have a, a you know, a, a, a line that is going to consistently score goals for us, you know, that you can count on to go out there when, when you have to get one? Well, I mean, I, first of all, for just from, my perspective is I'd, I'd rather not win games five, four. I'd rather win games three to one and three right. to, and four to two, um, because I think the teams that win games, you know, six to five, one in the regular season, they get in the playoffs and they, they don't do much. You know, you, you look at a team like Toronto, right? They're, they're not built for that Edmonton. because the playoff game is so different. I'd rather be a team that gives up the seventh most least amount of goals and score the 16th most amount of goals in the league. I think I'd be more successful in the playoffs by doing that. Um, but that being said, again, this is going to be, with this team especially, like it was two years ago, a team that spreads it around. It's going to be getting scoring from multiple places you know, throughout the lineup. You're going to need your top six guys to be your bread and butter point getters. Guys like Konechny, he's got to have a good year. He back-to-back 24-goal seasons. Uh, the second one of those 24-goal seasons in just 69 games, 30-goal pace. He's got to get back to being that player. you got to have a guy like, uh, you know, like Jake Voracek, or excuse me, like uh, James Van Riemsdyk, not to, in essence, duplicate what he did last year because he had a really good year, scored 17 goals last year. Uh, but he's got to have, a, you know, he's got to be good on the power play as a net front guy, and he's got to come up with those clutch goals. Farabee. 20 goals last year in 55 games, 30 goal pace has got to be that guy again. You know, Limblom's a guy that prior to his diagnosis was leading the team in scoring. And I think now, I think you're going to see a far different Oscar Limblom this year as well. Uh, he's got to get back to being on that trajectory. And then you look at, you know, guys like Kevin Hayes, got to be more, got to score more goals, got to, you know, stop with some of the senseless dead angle shots that kind of thwart a good offensive zone possession, you know, just throwing a dead angle shot on a goalie and, and you know, cause that can just end any, you know, sustained four check that you had. Uh, so he's gotta be, a, he's gotta be better. And then, you know, you look at guys in the bottom six and Scott Lawton's a guy needs to be a little bit more consistent. I mentioned all Bay Cubell. You're not relying on these guys to, to fill up your net. What's Wade Allison going to be right. Had, had, you know, a decent season last year, scored four goals in his 14 games and got a little bit of power play time. He's another one. And then defensive scoring two years ago was something they did really well. Last year, not so much. 
Uh, they need to get back to that as well. Couturier's got to be a guy that's going to give you what he gave you those back-to-back years. About a 30-goal scorer, about a point-per-game guy. I expect a big year out of him. So it, it's going to be more balanced. You're not going to have one guy that's going to go out there and, and give you 45. Atkinson should give you 32. You know, he should get some on the power play. He should get some on five on five. So, and he's a shoot first guy. They, they need to philosophically as well, get out of this mentality of no, here you shoot. No, here you shoot. And give right. him the puck off. I swear they could have a three on O and not end up with a shot on goal, a right. registered shot. Or five <laughs> on three, five on three. They were brutal. Yeah. I mean, you got to get the puck. Eventually I want a guy that gets the puck on a stick and says, I'm shooting, shoot now, ask questions later. And Atkinson's one of those guys. Um, you know, I, it's why I was interested in Tarasenko because he hasn't found a shot he w- doesn't like. But um, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But they're going to be a more balanced attack team that can get goal scoring throughout the top nine pretty consistently uh, and, and a team that can, you know, get their goals that way. You know, again, uh, I keep referencing it two years ago. They were seventh in goals allowed, but they were also seventh in scoring that year. And do they have more scoring on this team? Potentially. Uh, so if you look at it, you go, you can't look at it and say, well, they don't have a 40 goal guy, so they won't score. And I know a lot of people wanted line A and line A is great when he's grooving, but there's a lot of times when line A is not grooving. And when he's not grooving, he's an absolute mutt and flyer fans. He's one of those guys that looks great from afar. Great release, great shot. He's got Steve. a skill that not many people on the planet can possess that ability to shoot the puck like that. But he's also got the ability to disappear in long stretches, 10 15 game stretches and when he's not scoring he's a net negative player on your team and that that's why i wouldn't have been in favor of giving up a a substantial package to get him interested in him sure but it's going to cost too much to pay him and it's going to cost too much to to get him so therefore i'm not interested because i just don't know that he'll ever play the game the right way that's a really good perspective so jason uh my our last question and then we get to a fun segment that we do every week Um, you put on your Twitter poll yesterday, I believe, um, regarding the Flyers having nominees for their Hall of Fame. So I want to go over that and get everyone on this panel's opinion and and viewers, please, uh, type your thoughts as well. Um, the Flyers are going to have now, Jason, is it one or could it be more? It can be more. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So the nominees, uh, for, for, to go into uh, Flyers lore is we have Rick Tockett, we have Mark Recchi, we have Simone Gagne, we have Paul Holmgren, both as player, coach, and GM, and Lou Nolan. My opinion, if you're going to go one or two, it, it's it's really, to me, just uh, Tockett, Gagne, Recchi. Holmgren was a very good player. Bad, he had some bad coaching years. Bad, G, he had some good GM years, some bad GM years. Bob Kelly, love him. Met him in person. I don't think he's a Flyer Hall of Famer. He was part of the great team, but then Teleski's got to get in, or his Kinderjuk's got to get in. Everyone's got to get in from that team then. But to me, my favorite player of all time is Rick Tockett. That's who I wanted. Jason, who would you want it? Well, I'm a voter, <laughs> so oh, I'll no. say that right away. Nice. <laughs> I, I have been impaneled, uh, so I can't say who I voted for because I have put my votes in already. Okay. Um, and, and we kind of vote them in, you know, one, two, three, four, five. We kind of rank them. And then the entire vote, it's like weighted. Uh, so, look I, look, I look at all of them. And, you, and, and again, like Bob Kelly, I didn't see Bob 
play a ton. I, I was obviously very young when they won the cups. He, you know, he scored the clinching goal to win a cup. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think the one thing too is it, this is also about just contributions to the organization in total. So it's not just you know Bob Kelly's player. He's been an ambassador for the team right. for thirty years and does countless, countless events. So that's part of the equation. And then you know Lou Nolan is the only member on this planet Earth that's been with the team since they came into the league in some way, shape, or form, did PR the first couple of years, and has been the public address announcer, I think, since 72. So he's been around forever as well. I mean, he's been doing it. I was born in 72. He's been the PA announcer since 72. But the players, you know, you know, and, and Paul Holmgren's a guy that I, I believe should be in there. He was a really good player for the team, and he's given so much to the organization over the years. I know people like to kill him, uh, you know, because of the way he left the cupboard when his general manager tenure was over. Uh, but he also coached the team when, you know, during a period from in 89 when they weren't very good and they had those years and they had to retool and eventually got Lindros. But um, he, he's a guy, a hockey lifer does, has done a great, great amount for the organization. And uh, if you just heard some of the stories of the way he's taking care of people behind the scenes, then I know, I know that's not really the, the, the point of going to the hall of fame, but it's a, a big element of who he is as a man. Uh, but when I look at the three players, you know, Recky Tockett and, and Simone Gagne, you know, all three are very worthy. Uh, all three played a substance, the most games of, in any Jersey as a flyer, you know, Tockett played over 600 games as a flyer, had the C on his Jersey turned into a player that a lot of people didn't think he'd ever turn into. You know, when he first got in the league, never really thought of as a super skilled player and kind of in that mold of Cam Neely as a power forward. But, you know, had some 40-goal seasons in the league and was a tremendous player here in Philadelphia in two stints. Um, so he's worthy. Recky, I mean, is a guy to me, holds the franchise record for points in a season, if you can believe that. It's not Clark. It's not Lindros. Correct. It's Mark Recky at 127 and was a really good flyer and, and then, you know, Simone Gagne, I mean, not only was he, he a really good player, he was the face of the team for a long time and scored some huge goals. I mean, huge goals for the team. Go back to the Boston game in game seven, the go-ahead goal in the power play, and you go back to 2000, he had a huge goal in, in, in that run towards the conference final um, and was a really good player here. So uh, any of those three guys, you know, I look at and I go, no problem with any of them getting in. The order with which you have them could change per person. You know, Recky's a guy that I look at and I go, man, how's he not in already, right? So you, you look at all those guys and they all belong there. Who's going there and and, and when uh, will be determined by the voting. And then, you know, I, but I look at guys like like Holmgren and, you know, Lou Nolan needs to be in the Flyers Hall of Fame. I mean, he really does. Right. He's been the voice for, for so many years. So maybe they, they put in one player and, and one pseudo-constructor or – you know, and we'll see how that plays out. But, um, you know, when you're making a list, uh, I mean, you, there's a lot of names I could add to that list, too. Right. For consideration and the nomination committee, which I was not a part of, had to go through that. And they've nominated, you know, these names and we'll see who gets in, whether it's one guy or maybe a couple for this season. All right. You made me feel small because I was thinking strictly skill on the ice, but yeah, yeah, the ambassador angle is important. And home well, I mean, think about this: Lou Nolan has never slipped on the ice when in the old Spectrum days, when he had to walk from one side of the ice to the other on clean ice after the Zam has already cleaned it. That is no easy task in dress shoes, <laughs> right? And he's, and he's also he also is the MC for every important. He's he'll be MCing himself into the Flyers Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> I mean, he, he's MC'd some huge. I mean, I, 
I talked about this on my Flyers Daily podcast with Bill. I mean, he's emceed some enormous nights. You know, Bob Clark night. Yeah, uh, when Pelly Lindbergh passed away, that next game against the Edmonton Oilers, a one nothing win. Uh, you know, he was there for that. I mean, he, he and Gene Hart did that one, and I mean, there's some some big moments that you know he's he's emceed and and you know that JJ Daniel goal that happened at the Spectrum when he announces that goal and. We all remember those moments, and you know he's the voice of them. And he's an awesome guy too, like such a nice guy. And you know, as as a kid growing up, my dad, you know, when he finally made a little bit of money, invested in season ticket, and it helped with my love of hockey. And we had season tickets in section R, row seven, and you know, here in Lou, and all those years. And when my dad passed away. You know, Lou shot me a real nice note and everything, and you know, didn't have to do that. And you know, getting to know the some of these guys as people too. You know, I know a lot of people don't get to do that and, and don't get to have that as part of the consideration on who they think should be there. But, um, you know, and Paul Holmgren, just what he's done for so many guys, you know, off the ice is, you know, some of it public, some of it not. But uh, it has been just incredible, like the man that he is and what he's done for USA hockey, I think, is something that I always look at as well in the growth of the game in this country. And we see it the draft every year now so many Americans like getting drafted high and he, and he paved the way. He was the first American to wear a Flyers jersey. First American player. So uh, I, I got to look at all those things and consider them all. And, you know, you got to look at, you know, you do have to, there's some knocks against Paul for the general managership at the end there. And, but, uh, you know, he also made the Pronger deal, which I think puts them in the finals in 2010. So there's some good elements there as well. All right. So, so Nick, basically, we have all viable good candidates, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Well, well, Nolan, Nolan goes in, and and hopefully one or two players. And, so you're voting talk as your player. Well, if I'm going player, I go talk it. Um, I have no problem with that. Yeah, and and I I I don't know the behind the scenes stuff with Holmgren. I've always the thing with Holmgren that's maybe you could clarify this. He was he was essentially fired, resigned, came president after he was did a horrific job as a GM in his last tenure. He hires Hextall, and then he ultimately fires Hextall. I mean, I mean, he he was replaced by Hextall, and then he fires Hextall. Well, I think it, the hiring of Hextall was it, it was Mr. Snyder more was right but, that moving Paul up into a president role, and Paul Paul was less involved in hockey ops at that point. Um, and was more on the business side, oddly enough. Um, I mean, I remember but, going to, to yeah, he, he broadcast replaced, meetings, and Paul would be in those. He replaced. Um, I, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, the guy. I'm drawing a blank. Who he replaced? Um, Peter Luca, maybe. Is that who he yeah, replaced? Peter was more building and Comcast Spectacor, but did, okay. so the roles were far different. And Peter was, you know, would actually meddle a little bit in hockey ops as well, uh, but was more of the, the business side and building side and running Comcast Spectacore. But um, no, Paul was, you know, the president and, and an advisor, a guy that they could bounce ideas off of. And he's well-respected in the hockey community. Um, you know, Chuck Fletcher sees him as an asset. And I know a lot of people look at it and they say, oh, Clark, he's still around. Homer's still around. These failed GMs, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, having as many hockey people around as you can is, is always a good thing, which goes, you know, kind of back to Mike O'Connell, who they brought in from, a, from the Kings. Um, he... You know, he's a great hockey mind, former GM, worked with the Kings organization out there under Dean Lombardi and 
is now a special advisor to Chuck. And you can't ever have enough of those guys around to really help you out. And I think the important thing that those guys do is they make you look at, you know, yourselves and the organization and everything in an honest way, not to, to look at stuff and just kind of make excuses, but to, to look at it and say, how can we be better? And, you know, having those kind of minds around from different eras and, and even now, I think is a good thing. Okay. So we will close uh, our, our show with uh, a fun segment that we call the penalty box. It's, I've never it's, been in the penalty box. I'm a goalie, so we never had to serve our own penalties. Well, you're going to be in it now. Oh, sweet. So, Did I have Nick serve my uh, <laughs> my minor penalty? I've never got – well, I've gotten a major. I've gotten kicked out of a game before, but I've never gotten a major. This is, a, this is the kind of penalty box you want to be in. So, Nick, what time is it? It's time for the penalty box. So – we had a very popular um, Twitter post either last week or earlier in the week um, that that had some uh, legs to it. So I, Nick and I are going to give our feedback, and we'd like your feedback. And again, viewers, we'd like your feedback as well. So I, I put together um, a list of or graphics of. The oh, I saw this. Yeah, awesome. you got. Yeah, you guys, I was tagged in this, and my freaking phone was vibrating like uh, a Sibian <laughs> machine huh, on the old Snare Shell. Because oh, everybody no. was responding for days. Nick's responsible for the tagging. I'm so me. sorry. Yeah. I didn't know my wife was trying to get like my phone. <laughs> I was wondering why my wife was trying to steal the phone. It kept vibrating. Jesus. <laughs> the old lady was like, give me that thing. No. Anyway. All right. So we'll, you're the guest of honor. Give me your top three on this list all right top three um i would uh are these in order uh it doesn't have to be okay i'll give you i'll give you my top three my bottom three Ooh. in my top three is number nine the one that talks wearing mm-hmm. love that jersey the old school orange that was the road jersey back then they were white at home correct uh number two i would put number eight in the one that jeru's wearing the uh, is that a Winter Classic jersey, I believe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Is that Briz's year? The year that Briz uh, didn't no, play in the no, Winter no. Classic? No, they had the a Rangers. White Rangers, right? the, one Rangers? Behind, the one behind me is the uh, is the, the Briz year. I just have it. Yeah, it was wrong. white. Okay. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I love that Jeru one with the – I just love the way that jersey looks and the pants. They actually put color on the pants for that. Uh, I like that one. And then, you know, I still like number six. You know, it just reminds me of that era with the, you know, the Legion of Doom and Johnny LeClaire and Desjardins and obviously Lindros. And that's just a cool jersey to me. Uh, I like black jerseys. And that one is the better black one than the one that Richards is wearing with the more what the way the sleeves are different. So I would go nine, eight and six in no particular order, although I would probably pick number eight as the best one because even though it's a third jersey. And then the, the ones I like the least, number one is awful. Number 11, sorry, Joe Heller, who uh, was a part of the 50th anniversary jersey. Gold does not work with orange and black. And then probably number three. The old ones I can't, you know, number two, I can't qualm with. I can't, I can't, you know, 12 with Clarkie is a classic jersey with the C yeah. and white outlined in orange. I mean. 
but yeah, number one is the worst. And I don't like number five either, to be honest with you. I did not like those stadium series jerseys. Okay. Did not like them. It's just too much black in there for me. So I like the stadium series jersey when they played in Philly, but I don't like the one from the Pittsburgh year. And that, that Pittsburgh one was a miserable experience for me. Miserable. Oh, was, yeah. I, you're, our, you know what? You know, you're on our thumbnail, obviously, for this episode. And I believe the thumbnail picture is you at that game, that rainy, wet game. That's the game you're talking about, where Giroux scored late. Uh, yeah. Well, the one in, that was in Philly, and then the one two years prior in Pittsburgh at Heinz Field. You know, the day before it was like 68 degrees in February. And I was at my buddy's house we're in Pittsburgh and we we're grilling outside. And then the next day it was like miserable in the morning or nice in the morning. And then it just got colder and colder. And just the experience, the rink is actually like risen up on the field. And they wanted me to sit in this chair. I'm the ringside reporter. And they wanted me to sit in this chair. And like I'm down below the rinks, like, you know, three feet off the ground. And I can't see it. You can't see through the boards, right? I would just see some heads when they came by. And I'm like, I need to, they're like, you can't be in the TV shot. I'm like, you got camera guys everywhere. So I had to fight this war for about the first half of the game to get on the glass because Tim Saunders and Steve Coates are in like, you know, in Harrisburg calling the game. So we need somebody on the glass. And eventually I got on the glass for it, but it was just my computer froze because it got so cold. It was crazy. It was just not a great experience, but I've done all the outdoor games right on the glass, and it's it's been good. The one in Philly kind of sucked because you know the rain, the ice was crap, but the the outcome was good. And but doing it Fenway in 2010 was awesome, and then Citizens Bank Park was cool in 2012. So some cool outdoor games, but yeah, uh, I got I got to give that number eight jersey the the nod is the one I like the most. Yeah, plus I like Nick, the color of orange. Yep, Nick and I picked that on our on our pool as. <clears throat> on our poll as well. I, right, Nick, I went, we went, I went yeah. eight, you went eight. Um, I, I think I, why eight looks so good is I, you know what? I, I like when the helmet matches the color that's on the shoulders. And when you, when mm. you substitute the black and on the orange, instead of the white on the orange, which it's, we're always so used to seeing white on the orange. If you look at all the rest of the jerseys, like the, even the Taka Jersey was so Jason, I mean, not to, I have, I have evidence that eight, nine, and six were my picks, which which is exactly what you picked. But yeah, you know the Taka jersey, you've got the white the white sleeves with the black helmet, a little more of a contrast. But when you throw the black on the shoulders, man, and that that color orange is so oh my god, it's so sweet. Like that is just yeah. I would love to see that start to become their uh, their primary jersey. But I also would like to see Clarkie's jersey with the white helmet and see what that looked like. I, I bet you in a modern day version of that jersey. Like you said, with the C outlined, or maybe even do the numbers outlined like that. I think that would be really cool too. Yeah, yeah. It, the the Clarky one is it's weird. It's like an almost a reddish orange. Yeah, you know. Um, and you see some of the ones where people go like a cheap site and get one as a throwback, and it's actually red. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you got to have enough orange tint in there. But I, do we all agree that eleven with the gold is oh, eleven and one are awful? Yeah. I think one, what really kills one is it's a bad jersey to begin with. And then you got that logo that they made with the 3D weird logo. dot in the middle. And yeah. I don't, know. don't mess with that. that. Don't mess with the logo. Just <laughs> leave the logo as is. I have to be um, candid. I, I picked 11 as a top three jersey. I really like it. Don't, Do you really? I apologize. Um, <laughs> what it's are funny you, a though. communist? 
How can you like that? <laughs> well, but it, yeah, I don't know. I, the gold just clashes. <laughs> Jay, Jamie, Jamie Leach um, ripped me for it, too, because um, we, we did a, an episode with all, like, league-wide jerseys, good and bad. And he, he, he doesn't like the current Flyers highlighter orange look, as he calls it. Um, yeah, if you look at Kimo's jersey, it's, it's a little highlighter-ish, you know. So mm-hmm. um, it would be nice to go back to the Rick Tocket orange that you mm-hmm. see there, Rick McLeish. But, yeah, so I went, I went 8, 5, and 11 um, as my favorites. I, 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 like, I, I like to change things up. And, 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 if, and if when you get to know me, and Nick will tell you, Every five minutes, I'm changing our our flyer and ice logo on on the websites. I just love playing around with colors. So um, well, I know though, the goalie coaches over the years hate the black jerseys. Right, makes the goalie look so much smaller. Okay, maybe it hate black, they hate black pads and they hate black jerseys. Interesting. Goalie looks way slimmer. Maybe hide the puck a little bit more, though, when, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's a thing or not, but if. Goalie doesn't want to hide it. You want to find it. No, for the, for, for the, for uh, the, for the bad guys. Yeah. yeah. Right. But when you look at like when a, when a shooter's going in on a goalie, it's a fleeting glance of where you're right. going to go. Right. And if you see contrast between right. the net right. and Jersey, you see a lot more net yes. if it's in a light Jersey. You don't know. You don't know where the goalie stops and the net begins. So, yeah, there's a lot of goalie coaches. Like Kim Dillaball, the Flyers goalie coach, is really against black pads, too, because of the contrast. They just look narrower. They look slimmer. And, you know, if a, if a puck's laid on your pads in a scrum, it's harder for the goalie to find it because there's no contrast. So That's you'll a great see. Point. Yeah, there's very few guys that will wear black. You know, Corey Crawford was a guy that wore a lot of black. and um, But the goalie generally wants to look bigger. And black does. Very slimming. <laughs> very interesting. Naturally, so, when I was growing up, I wore black pads like an idiot. Right. Well, <laughs> wearing, wearing black helped Jonathan Cook a couple times, but uh, only a little bit of black in there because Kim Dillaball was his goalie coach. Only black accents and silver accents and white pads. So he probably had some say into to the um, design scheme, I guess. Yeah, you can put some black accent in there, but the overall pad, especially right. the the outer roll, needs to be white. All right. Or a color you- or orange. Are you still coaching? You were coached out of high school out in Westchester, right? At one point, you guys made it down to the Flyers Cup. Yeah, we won like five oh. in a row and uh, won a couple state championships in there, too. I was coaching yeah. for Westchester Rusted uh, right. with the varsity team there for a, a bunch of years with Nick Russo, who coached me in high school. And then uh, I didn't, I haven't done that for a while. Uh, I was coaching in the middle school level uh, for my son's team, and I coach his U16 midget team. Now I'm the head coach of that team. And... Uh, Where's He's that? A, uh, Team Philly out of Ice Line okay. in Westchester. Okay. So yeah, we practice again. I only know the junior players out of Westchester. I didn't. I don't. I don't know mm-hmm. any other teams. Yeah, that's the Tier One program. Yeah. And um, he's a freshman this year at uh, and playing uh, high school hockey as well. So uh, for Rustin. Good. Good so. for you. Yeah, I'm an idiot for coaching, but it is what it is. Well, I'm in the rink every friggin' day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's insane. Cold there. Yeah, well, gentlemen, we we've, we've hit that magic number of hour and fifteen minutes, and, and it goes so it goes fast. Yeah, I, I was expecting to see forty five minutes. It's an hour and fifteen minutes has gone by. Jason, we cannot thank you enough, um, ladies and gentlemen. This show will be up on Spotify, iTunes, Apple, 
Google Pod, all the podcasts out there. We will replay it on YouTube. Subscribe to Heat Ratio Sports on YouTube. Um, our next show, I can't give you a, a definitive date, but it might be just the four guys. Nikki Nuts will be back. Vance will be back and, and Nick the Scout myself. So on behalf of Nick, Jason, I'm Dan Green. We are Flyer and Ice. We will see you pretty soon when the season starts. It's 37 days away from dropping that puck. Take care, everyone. Be safe.